So I'm thinking you guys have probably been watching the Olympics this week. That'd be right. Yeah. I've especially enjoyed uh, watching the men's swimming competition. I wish I could move at that speed on dry land. <laughs> Those guys are amazing. And, and watching the men's competition, I've especially enjoyed watching the two American competitors, if you haven't been watching it, uh, uh, Ryan Lochte and Michael Phelps. And a lot of speculation about how Michael Phelps would do this time around, um, seemingly according to the, the pundits commentating on it. He didn't take it as seriously this time around. I guess he kind of proved that wrong. Um, but he did take it very seriously. However, in the midst of all this competition, there was an interview that took place with Ryan Lochte. Ryan is one of his teammates and uh, a competitor in several of the races that Michael Phelps is going to be in. And for whatever reason, uh, the interviewer said to Ryan Lochte, what exactly do you hope to accomplish while you're here? And I'm thinking in my mind, well, that's kind of a duh question. I mean, he's obviously there to compete in the Olympics and win. But before I could even utter a word to anybody else in the room, he said, I'm here to win. And the interviewer said, well, of course you are. And he said, no, I'm here to win. That's why I came. I own this. This is my competition. I own these Olympics. Oh, well, that's pretty bold. He's pretty confident. Well, indeed, that's why he was there. He came to win. Many people, when they look at this story that we're about to look at this morning in John chapter 18, think that Jesus was defeated. Jesus came to win. That's the reason what you're about to read took place. That's the reason for this event in the garden that we're about to look at in John 18. Jesus came as a victor. He was not a victim. He was there to win. I'm going to remind you of what he said himself. John chapter 10 and verse 17. We looked at this months ago. You'll see it up on the screen. John 10, 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See, the false view is this. A lot of individuals looking at that setting in which Jesus was crucified, arrested, beat, tortured, they say he was an unwilling victim and, and that things went horribly wrong. And somehow he unintentionally gets himself executed. Obviously, they've never read the Bible account because the Bible is very clear about what happened here. His death was according to God's foreknown plan, predetermined by the will of God. Here's what Scripture says, Acts 2.23. Jesus was delivered over to death by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So here's what we know walking into John chapter 18 this morning. Jesus knowingly sets in motion a chain of events which culminate in the achievement of a strategy that was planned by God and had been in waiting since before the foundation of the world. Now, here's one other detail as we step into this garden setting on this particular morning when we're studying this. If you could go through the veil of eternity beyond the curtain of time, you would see at this moment an entire realm of warrior angels who are watching this setting, looking at the king of creation, standing in a grove of olive trees, and they're ready to go to battle in a moment's notice. All they want is the word. 
they see praetorian soldiers of Rome coming in and surrounding the king of creation carrying swords and torches. It's in this setting that Jesus walks into the garden. So would you go with me to John chapter 18 if you have your Bible with you this morning. Go ahead and turn that open and you'll be able to follow along. It's going to be up on the screen as well. If you picked up one of the bulletins when you came in this morning, there's little study guides in there that give you a few of the pointers. You can follow along that way. John chapter 18 and verse 1 says this. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas, also who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So what we've learned in the last few weeks is they leave the upper room. They're passing through the back streets of Jerusalem making their way outside the city, leaving the hustle and the bustle of the noise behind them because it's Passover time. And there's a lot of activity in the city. Jesus takes the disciples out to a quiet area and he heads across this area known as the ravine of the Kidron. The word Kidron actually means gloomy. Now this is a ravine that has water flowing through it during the rainy season. But the reason it was attached with the word gloomy is because it lays 200 feet below the temple wall. So if you're down in the ravine of the Kidron and you're looking up, you see the temple mount way above you. But here's what's unique about it. During Passover, when the priest would be slaying the lambs that were brought for a sacrifice, the blood was channeled from the lambs all the way down into the ravine of the Kidron so that the water was mingled with blood. So therefore, the waters were called gloomy, Kidron. So when Jesus steps across the Kidron, he's stepping across the blood of the lambs on his way to this particular garden. This garden that we're told about is on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. So as Jesus is making his way eastward, he looks at the western slope of the Mount of Olives with his disciples, and sitting on the mountainside is a grove, a grove of olive trees. And in the midst of that, according to extra-biblical tradition, we're told that there's a garden there that's owned by a wealthy family from Jerusalem who allowed Jesus to go there for private times, times when he wanted to just meet with people alone. And that's where they're headed, this Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane literally means olive press or oil press because that's where they process the oil from the olive trees. And these individuals know that Jesus needed a place and Jesus has permission, so he goes there on a regular basis. But we're told in verse 2, Judas also knew the place. Now we haven't seen Judas for weeks because it's taken us a long time to get to chapter 18. For the disciples, it's only been a couple hours. They literally saw him leave the room. They were in the upper room with him. Judas took off. They didn't know why. And now he shows up again. Now, Gethsemane is well known by the disciples also. As a matter of fact, we're told in Luke 22, 39, Jesus' custom was to come and visit the Mount of Olives. So when you look at the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is talking in the book of Matthew about His return, His future return to planet Earth, it takes place on the Mount of Olives. That's where Jesus would go to teach people. But this garden was unique. This garden was a secluded place. It was on the Mount of Olives, but it was separate. Apparently, it had a wall around it. 
Now, we understand, according to what I've studied this last week, and I'm sure you've seen it before, this Garden of Gethsemane, because it's a secluded place, if you've read the account before, you know that Jesus poured out His heart to God there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke capture that. John doesn't write anything about it. He wants us to understand Jesus' victory when He approached this situation. So it's very significant that Jesus is there to pour out His heart, but it's also very significant. You'll have this in your notes this morning. The second point is, Jesus knew that Judas knew this is where He would be. It is staggering to me that Jesus arranges the time and place of His own betrayal. He doesn't seek to escape from God's plan by changing His habits. Rather, he goes to the place that's most familiar where Judas knew exactly where to go, where he would find Jesus, so that Judas could easily approach him. Go with me on to verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, we've seen in the study of the book of John over and over again, where the authorities of Israel and their, their police guard have tried to arrest Jesus. And every single attempt up to this point has failed. But now, it's God's eternal plan. The time has come together. Now remember, Jerusalem is swarming with people. Hundreds of thousands of vacationers have come into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. It's so packed, you can't even find lodging in the city. So logically, the Jewish leaders don't want to arrest Jesus in the city. They're fearful. Now that they know that he's in a secluded location, a private place, they can affect an arrest without the population of the city knowing. Because they've just been cheering, Hosanna! Hosanna! Four days earlier, Jesus came down into the city. Everybody's cheering him. So the Jewish leaders are afraid of how is the crowd going to react? Look with me on the screen. Matthew 26. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill Him. But they were saying not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now we know that a few days earlier, Judas approached the leaders of Israel and hatched a plan about how he would betray Jesus. On Thursday evening, the night of the Last Supper, when he left the upper room, he went back to the leaders of Israel, and that's the point where they gave him the 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. And at that moment, he negotiated a sign by which he would indicate whether or not Jesus was the one, whether or not the one that he approached. So he left to make final arrangements. And now we see in verse 3, Judas shows back up on the scene and he's leading a crowd. Look with me on the screen at Matthew's version, Matthew 26. Judas came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs. And we're told in verse 3 of John 18 that he received the Roman cohort. I don't know how you've looked at this arrest before. Perhaps if you've grown up in church or you've seen some of the artwork that's been associated with this, you've had an image in your mind of what it looked like in the garden that night. Mel Gibson captured in the Passion of the Christ the arrest that took place, showing it as a band of soldiers coming in and capturing him and taking him away. But they didn't really fully capture what actually took place here. 
a Roman cohort is 1,000 soldiers. 760 foot soldiers, 240 cavalrymen, mounted on horses along with their officers. They're stationed at the barracks at the fortress of Antonio inside Jerusalem. A Roman cohort was always sent out with its officers because the officers kept the men in control. In case things got out of hand, they needed their commanding generals there with them. Whatever the number was, whether it was in 600 range or 1,000 range, there's some discrepancy on that, there's enough soldiers here to warrant a commanding officer. That's what the passage tells us. Judas received a Roman cohort and officers and the chief priest and the Pharisees who also came with the temple guard according to Matthew's version. Now it's unlikely that an entire full cohort of a thousand men came, but you can bet it was in the hundreds, carrying torches, carrying swords, carrying clubs, carrying lanterns. That's the setting, and Rome is there to serve as a backup. The temple police actually made the arrest of Jesus. The temple police, standing in the front, captured him. We know that because they're the ones that delivered him first to the Jewish authorities. They didn't take him to a Roman authority. They took him immediately to the Jewish authorities, not to a Roman administrator. And we're told in verse 3 that they came with lanterns and torches and weapons. And it seems like a really kind of a minor detail. But pay attention to that. What you're looking at is the witness of an eyewitness. Someone who was actually there, who can write down the details, who can tell you what he's seeing here. Why is that significant? Because Passover was always celebrated at full moon. Jewish calendars are very, very exact. And they would not celebrate Passover at a time other than when there is a full moon in the sky. So those soldiers did not need lanterns or torches to see the path that they're walking on, a very well-traveled path to the Mount of Olives. What they expected is that Jesus was going to run. And they brought the clubs and the torches and the swords and the lanterns so that they could chase Him across the mountainside. Because everybody knew what was in store for Jesus, what He'd been accused of. And they're anticipating He's going to take off. Now John doesn't record this particular detail. I just want to pull your attention to it for a minute. John does not record what Matthew, Mark, and Luke record. He does not record the depth of the sin of Judas by which he betrayed the King Jesus. When Judas left the upper room and he went to the leaders of Israel and negotiated how he would indicate the sign, we know if we've grown up in church or we've been here very long that it was done through a kiss. But did you know that there were four or five forms of kisses that were used at this particular period of time in the first century? When an individual would come in the presence of one who was revered and greatly honored, they would sometimes kiss their feet. Sometimes they would kiss their hand or they would kiss the hem of their garment. But the kiss on the cheek, that was reserved for the most intimate, personal friendship. The one whom you had a dear relationship with. Always given from a disciple to his Rabboni. As an indication to everyone else watching who he belonged to. So when you see Judas approach King Jesus and kiss him, to give an indication to those who are about to arrest him 
No wonder John calls him the son of perdition. No wonder Paul writes about him in 1 Corinthians saying, on the night Jesus was betrayed. That's why it scarred them so deeply because of the depth of what Judas went to. And in the midst of this, moving forward, you see King Jesus with ultimate regal calmness stepping forward according to verse 4 saying, knowing all the things that were coming upon Him. Go with me to verse 4. So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon Him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered Him, Jesus the Nazarene. He said to them, I am He. Now Jesus takes charge of the situation, and I absolutely love this. He's the first one to speak. He doesn't wait for anyone else to challenge Him. He's the first one to step right up, and He goes forth, according to John, and says, Who are you looking for? What do you seek? And what you see is the response of the official orders. Remember, they've got the arrest warrant in their hand. The warrant has been issued. And they read the arrest warrant. We're here for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' response, I am He. Is that really how He responded, though? We're told, according to the original Greek manuscripts, that the word He was not included. This is the way it should look. You'll see it on the screen. I am. The he was added later by a copyist, an individual who transcribed the gospel so that people would understand what he was referring to when they tried to move it into the English language. So Jesus' response is this, ego, emi. What's significant about that? Moses on Mount Sinai said to the Lord God, whom shall I tell the people that you are? They'll want to know your name. God's response Tell them, I am that I am. So when you see Jesus throughout the New Testament, use seven times in the book of John, I am. He uses the title of God. He's wearing God's name. That's the response that you see take place. And that explains why what happens next in verse 5, the rest of it. Look with me on the screen. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now why does John want us to know that Judas also was standing with him? There's another detail for us. John's there, he's looking, and he's an eyewitness, and I'm sure he can't hardly believe it. He sees the guy that he just sat at supper with standing with the Roman cohort. And they're there to arrest him. So John tells us that Judas also was standing with them. The Holy Spirit wants us to know 2,000 years later. That's why it's written down that Judas is about to experience the exact same thing that is about to happen to all those who came to arrest Jesus. He's about to be thrown to the ground with those who came to capture him. So when on the sloping mountainside, in the middle of the night, in this private garden grove, walls around it, these Roman soldiers approach in the forces of hundreds with torches and swords in their hands. They hear the voice of God. I am. And they're blown backwards. That's the response to the voice of God speaking. That's why it says they fell to the ground. Literally, the Greek language says that they went backwards. 
It doesn't say that happened to the disciples. It happened to the cohort in front of him because they responded. So instead of advancing to capture him, they fall backwards in fear. Instead of falling forward in worship, they fall back in terror. That's their response. So when you look at this, look at this as absolute domination of the moment. This is not a weakness on Jesus' part. All Jesus has to do is speak. And what does he speak? The name of God. We're told according to Scripture, this is the same way he spoke when the heavens and earth were created. He spoke the word and the earth was formed. He spoke and Satan and the fallen angels were thrown to earth and they were banished from heaven. He spoke and... (gasps) Lazarus' lungs filled with oxygen again. What you're seeing here is a foretaste of the last days of planet Earth. We're told that when Jesus returns in the last days, that when he speaks, all wars will cease, all enemies will fall by the word of his mouth. Look with me on the screen. Revelation 19.21. With the sword which comes from his mouth, Read Revelation 19 later today. You'll see what I'm talking about. When Jesus arrives, He speaks the Word of God and His enemies are obliterated. So at His Word here on this mountainside in the middle of the night, His enemies are thrown backward to the ground. And here's what I note about this. What restraint on the part of your king because he could have easily vaporized them, but he holds back. And he speaks with authority enough to knock them to the ground, but not to harm them, to show his authority. Now let's remember, the Roman soldiers have never seen Jesus before. They don't know who he is. They're there with the arrest warrant. That's why Judas showed up. He had to point him out to them. They don't know who he is. How small do their lanterns and torches feel now? How insignificant could they feel in this setting? Now, there's this absolute foolishness among liberal theologians who are looking at this passage and trying to explain away that Jesus was not God by saying, well, here's what really happened. Uh, Apparently, when the Roman soldiers showed up, Jesus jumped out of the bushes at them and scared them. And that's why they fell. Yeah, right. Roman soldiers, have you ever read anything about the history of Rome and the courage of the Roman soldiers? There's no fear on the part of them because Jesus spooked them. That's not what's going on. You're seeing the authority of God. So here's a logical question. He's about to be arrested. Why do that? Why speak, I am, and see this response? What's accomplished here? They're completely at His mercy. They're helpless on the ground. They're His subjects, not He theirs. So here's the way to really ask the question. What's stopping him from leaving at this moment? He's got all the authority. They're on the ground. Why does Jesus not walk away? There is nothing stopping him but the will of God and knowing the will of God. And to that, he submits He has all authority on heaven and earth. But to God's will, he bows. 
So when I say Jesus comes as the victor, not the victim, what you're seeing is they do not seize Jesus. He went willingly. Go with me to verse 7. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. So let's picture this. They're dazed and shocked. And by that, I mean those who came to arrest him. They're dazed and shocked. They're on the ground and they're picking themselves up off the ground. And Jesus asked the question again. And before he allows himself to be taken away, he demands they leave the 11 alone. He is ensuring that they not be harmed. Now you've got to ask yourself this question, why? Now Rome has just seen the awesome power that Jesus has displayed, and it puts them in a position to do whatever he's asking. Apparently, Jesus knows the threat is very real. It's evident that Rome is there to not only take Jesus, but to take the disciples as well. If you look at Mark's version later today, you'll see that as some of the disciples ran, the soldiers grabbed them by the clothing. In one case, they ripped the clothing off an individual. So what we're seeing here is these individuals intend to take the disciples, and Jesus wants to protect them. That explains why Peter is so fearful when he's standing outside Ananias' house. You'll see that in a couple weeks. And he's afraid that they're going to identify him. Because he knew that they would take him as well. So Jesus says in verse 8, If you seek me, let these go their way. Why did Jesus shield the disciples? In the last couple weeks, we've looked at the prayer of Jesus in chapter 17. Prior to that, we looked at chapter 16 in which Jesus said, I want you to understand, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. If they kill me, they will kill you. They will do all manner of evil against you. So why in this moment, knowing that they're at risk, does he shield them? Well, for one, the good shepherd always protects his sheep. And that's what you're seeing here. And he's fulfilling the word of which he said, of those whom you've given me, I've lost not one. He said that in chapter 17. But he's keeping them from being arrested, he says right here, so that they would not be lost. Here's truth. You are a gift from God the Father to Christ the Son if you're a believer in Jesus. God presented you to Jesus the Son as a gift. We're told according to the Word of God before the foundation of the world, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life as a presentation of God the Father to Christ the Son. You belong to Him. Uh, We looked at this in John chapter 6 and I know it was months ago. Let me just remind you of a short verse that will refresh your memory about this. Look with me on the screen, John 6, 37. All that the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. So here's the implication for the disciples that night in the garden. If they're arrested at that point in time, there's a great danger that their faith would fail. 
Jesus knew at this stage the trauma of being arrested and being imprisoned and even possibly being executed would cause them to have a shattered faith. And therefore, he's making certain that they're not going to be taken. Why is that significant to you? Because your God knows you. And he never allows you to go through something in which your faith is going to be so shattered that it would fail. And in the case of the disciples, he knows them. And he knows it's an incredibly complicated situation. And there's a great potential that it's so traumatic it's going to destroy them. Forty days later, when you see the arrival of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are beat. They are thrown in prison. Jesus doesn't stop that at that point in time. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has come. Their salvation is secure. They're believers in Jesus. Their foundation is firm. But at this point, He knows them. And it's because He trusts us to go through difficult situations, we can take confidence that He knows what we can endure. So hear me on this. When you do face complicated situations in your life and you feel like you're going through trauma, it's because God trusts you with those circumstances. He knows that in the midst of it, you can bring glory to Him. Because the trying of your faith produces endurance. That's what James wrote in James chapter 1. He knows you. He knows what you're capable of. So be confident. God will never allow you to go through a situation in which your faith will fail, in which you're unable to stand up in the midst of the circumstances. Let me remind you of this from 1 Corinthians 10.13. God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape. That's your God. That's what you see going on with Jesus in the garden. He's shielding them. Now go forward with me into verse 10. This is where it ends. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Melchus. Can you talk about an emotionally charged situation? You can hear the flicker of the flames and the torches. The guards are standing there rattling the metal that they're shrouded with. And Peter lunges forward with a sword. They sense the seriousness of the moment. So in, we're told according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke that the disciples at one moment cry out with a really loud voice. This is what they say. Luke twenty-two forty-nine. 49. Lord, shall we strike with the sword? When we read the Last Supper account, we see that they only have two swords. Peter's got one of them. But they're, they're really zealous about protecting Jesus. And Peter is so violent. He's willing to go down with this fighting attitude. But fortunately for Melchus, the slave of the high priest, Peter's not that good with a sword. He's better at fishing than he is at fencing. And I think he's going for the guy's head, but he misses or Melchus ducks, and he takes off his ear. Not a whole lot of harm done there. But without waiting for the answer, when the disciples say, Lord, should we strike first? Peter simply just impulsively surges forward. Now, think about this. He's got a sword, and this sword, we're told, is a makarai which is a little short, short dagger. It was common for a fisherman to use it. It's how they would clean fish. They would wear it in a sheath on the side of their leg. So he's just pulling out what he has, one of his working tools, and he feels invincible. What has he just seen? I am, and Rome falls. So Peter lunges forward and thinks, this is our moment. We're going to overthrow Rome. So his, his target is a high priest's slave, 
And Peter starts a battle that he could not possibly hope to win. He's got the force of Rome in front of him. What's he going to do with his little six-inch blade? Hack his way all the way through, cutting off everyone's ears? It's not possible for him to win this. Now Jesus has just told Rome, let them go. You're looking for me. Don't take them. What's Peter doing? Peter is you, and Peter is me. Peter is not listening to God. God has said, let them go. Peter's saying, I know better. I know God's plan better than you do, Jesus. I'm going to jump in and I'm going I'm to fix this. Because we always think we know better than God. When Peter's fighting the wrong enemy, he's got the wrong weapon, he's got the wrong motives, and it's going to produce the wrong result. So look at Jesus' response to him. This is the last verse for today. Verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword in the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Luke captures it this way. Jesus is literally saying, Stop! No more of this. I want no more of this situation. And he diffuses it completely. Had he wanted to, church, there are far more powerful warriors waiting to step in. Do you remember what we talked about at the beginning of this teaching? That he had angels at his disposal? Maybe you haven't seen this in a while. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 26. Jesus' response, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How many is in a legion? 6,000 times 12. How much damage could 72,000 warrior angels do in that moment? It would only take one to wipe out the Roman cohort. Jesus is saying, I have all the power at my disposal. What's his response? You see this on the screen as well, Luke twenty-two fifty-one. Jesus instead touches Melchus's right ear and restores it. Either creates a new one or he heals him instantly. But consider what you've just seen here. This display of God's power in a mere moment from the creation of an ear to the authority to cause a Roman detachment to collapse. And that's just in a breath. And here's where I want to end today. With this statement about the cup. Because it's really significant for where we're going next. Jesus says, the cup which the Father has given me Should I not drink it, Peter? This is what's been given to me. To drink the cup means to go through an incredibly difficult experience. We use the phrase today in the English language in ways that you may not even be aware of that you use on a regular basis. We have translated the meaning of the cup over to a phrase in the English language when we say something like this, it's not my cup of tea It's not a situation or an action that I'm willing to engage in. People use that phrase on a regular basis. Certain course of action, they're just not interested in. Or in this way, when you think of something like the Olympics and you think of competitors getting trophies, do you ever stop to think about why a trophy is in the shape of a cup? 
The cup is originated in the trophy because of what a person had to do to get to that point, to achieve victory. They had to swallow a great deal. So we reward individuals today by putting a gold medal around their neck. It's a symbol of what they achieved to get to that point. Today, we give out trophy cups because of what they've had to endure. And that's what Jesus' response is. I've got to endure this cup, Peter. God has given it to me. And what is this cup, church? It's not the death on the cross. It is not the physical dying. It's that the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him. The cup of God's wrath, the Bible calls it. What is one thing that Jesus has never known, absolutely never known, since not even in the existence of time, but before time, Jesus has never known, never known separation from God. And he's about to experience it. That's why he's on the cross saying, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because he feels the wrath of God being poured out on him. And he's dying for your sin and for mine. And that causes that separation. So he takes the cup of God completely on the cross. That's why we're told in 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on my behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So keep in mind this. If Jesus had the power to stun a Roman cohort, if he had the power to heal the ear instantly of someone who just had their ear severed, did he not have the ability to save himself? So when you think of this passage, remember this. He willingly submitted himself to the cross. He willingly allowed himself to be arrested. So here's what I want to send you out with today because I've had this verse just wrestling around in my mind all week long. This is what's been sticking with me when I think of this garden setting where sin did abound. Grace did that much more abound. Romans 5.20 But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. When you think of what Judas did in the garden, the betrayal that took place, the detestable behavior on the part of one of his own, and you see sin in the garden, church. You see what the human heart is capable of. But Scripture says, where my sin abounded, His grace much more abounded. How amazing this entire incident is drenched in the attributes of your King. We're calling this study the portrait. Every time we see God behavior in Jesus, we're saying it's an image of God. Let's see what we're seeing drenched here. He declares Himself the great I Am. And enemies fall. With a command, governments respond. The disciples are set free. They don't chase after them. They let them go. And yet, he bows willingly before the king. And he says, I submit. I will do what I'm called to do without a whisper of protest. That's your king.
That's who went to the cross for you. So the next time you celebrate communion and you hear that warning in which Paul said, let a man examine himself before drinking of the cup and eating of the bread. It's with this in mind, knowing of the price that was paid for us. That's why it's so serious. So I'm going to invite you right now to pray with me. We'll pray that God will seal this stuff in our heart, that we not forget it very soon, because this is very, very serious information. But it's great news because it makes us so bold. So would you pray with me? God, I ask for this church right now. I ask for every single individual in this auditorium that as we remember how confidently Jesus went forward, how he knew your will and accomplished your plan, that we would equally this week be that bold on your behalf. God, give us the courage to step up and say who we belong to. We've already done it this morning with the cup and with the bread. We've witnessed to the fact that we believe that you're coming again and that you died for us. Father, help us to be able to do that before our friends. Some of the students here are about to step back into school in the weeks ahead. Help them to be confident in the hallway. God, for coworkers, those who will step into the office tomorrow, I ask that you would give them courage to speak boldly. Help us to never shrink away, Father, that we know this truth. Seal it in our heart. God, we ask this in the name of our victorious King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.